It was uh, just over a, a year ago that a five-year-old little girl, Thusha Kamaleswaran, was uh, dancing uh, for her own entertainment in the aisle of her local shop in uh, Brixton when a group of armed teenagers arrived looking for another gang. They opened fire randomly in that shop and uh, Thusha was left paralysed. The television programme showed CCTV of her dancing in that shop. What would be the last dance of her life? Now, if those gang members had taken their guns to a piece of waste ground and uh, opened fire on each other and, and injured and perhaps even killed each other, it would still have been a tragedy. There would still have been wider questions to ask about their parenting and schooling and a society, the society that they grew up in. Um, but... Their suffering wouldn't have been entirely innocent. Those young men made choices, albeit there were factors perhaps beyond their controls that influenced those choices. There was a choice that they made. Thusha Kamaleswaran had no choice. She was innocent. And that's what really hurts us. That's what really strikes our hearts dearly. When we turn to God, that is the real question that we ask. Why specifically does he allow innocent suffering in this world? And that is the question that this Um, book of Job sets out to address and that is the question that we will be asking every week effectively in one form or another as we study the book of Job over I think about six weeks. And last week we saw by way of introduction that that, that, um, uh, uh, this book specifically introduces us to the topic right at the beginning of innocent suffering. Job chapter 1 Verse 1, just turn, keep your finger in the uh, uh, chapter 31, we'll be back there in a moment. But just um, to remind yourself, turn with me to Job chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That, that is the person who is going to suffer, as um, Tom was reminding us in the children's uh, talk there. And in chapters 1 and 2, we're we're allowed a little glimpse into the courtroom of heaven to get a first hint of why he might be suffering in this way. And it's a surprise, frankly, because um, in in, in a paradoxical way, it is in part precisely because he is innocent that he suffers. Job, actually, never sees that. He's still in the dark, as we, frankly, are in the dark about what God is doing. Now, uh, as we get to the end of um, this series, looking at Job, we will start 
to see some deeper answers to Job's insistent question of why he is suffering despite his innocence. But actually, for the, for the next three weeks, we are going to look at something else very important in the book of Job and is vital for us to absorb, not directly answering the question, why might God allow suffering? But actually, asking another question, how do we engage with suffering when it comes? Two weeks' time, we're going to be... um, uh, we go, we're going to be considering how the friends, Job's so-called friends, engage with his suffering. And um, uh, we will look at that. Um, next week, I think it is, we're going to be looking at how Job engages with God. But this week, we're going to be looking at another aspect of uh, what Job has to do as he faces his suffering. He has to examine himself. I don't know whether you um, uh, noticed it in the, uh, um, uh, in the last great speech of Job where he summarises his complaint, basically. He reveals, actually, that he has examined himself very closely, asking the question, well, is it perhaps because of my sin? Look at um, uh, verses um, uh, 2 to 4, for, for instance. Um, where he acknowledges that God would be just in bringing some trouble on him if he is sinful. What is our lot from God above, he says, our heritage from the, al- from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? Uh, and so on. In other words, God, God, God is a God of justice and we have to accept that. And in part, um, sometimes... We just have to acknowledge that God has brought trouble on us that we deserve. That's that's an underlying question that is there again and again. And and to be honest, it raises a big question for me. Because, if I'm honest, a rather large proportion of my suffering is a reasonably direct result of me doing wrong. You know, I, I, I suffer various, uh, um, from various stress-related conditions. And most of that stress, to be honest, is because I don't discipline myself in uh, my working patterns and I don't trust God. Who's to blame for that? You know, when Judy uh, uh, and I are, uh, are arguing or, 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 or fed up with each other, it's, it's generally because of my sin which has caused it. And I have to say, after nearly 16 years of pastoring uh, Maudlin Road, I I look at our weaknesses as a church, and again and again it comes back to me very clearly that they are the result of my failures as a pastor as much as anything else. I have to acknowledge that. 
That's not to say that there's not an awful lot of innocent suffering. That's the main thing that uh, the, the book of Job is dealing with. There is innocent suffering in this world. There is lots of innocent suffering in this world. There are big questions as a result of that. But you see, there's a lot of guilty suffering too. One Peter chapter 4 verse 15 Peter says after establishing that all Christians will suffer that, that's, a, that's a, a, a given all Christians will suffer he says and then he says if you suffer it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler in other words you're going to suffer Make sure you're an innocent sufferer. So that's the first thing I want us to look today, as we have three weeks looking at, at, at how Job and his friends ultimately interact with this reality of suffering before we come back then to the deeper questions about God. How, how does he approach this experience of suffering? Well, the first thing he does is he examines himself. Now let me say, there are plenty of people in this world who always just assume, well, it's all my fault, I'm a terrible person, I'm, deeply, I'm obviously deeply guilty, there's something terrible that has happened in my life. And of course the whole thrust of Job is that, that, that there's not necessarily a correlation between your suffering and your innocence. But I have to say pastorally there are also significant proportion of people whenever trouble comes their way it's always someone else's fault you know my, my marital problems are all my partner's fault it's nothing to do with me my difficulties at work are all, the, all due to the failures of others I'm a perfect employee my health problems are nothing to do with the, the life choices that I've made and the diet that I've chosen to eat and the alcohol abuse that I've, in, I've chosen to engage in. It's just a terrible calamity that God has visited on me. You see, it is so important that we balance. We have a balanced attitude. And one of the things that all people must do is examine themselves. And Job has clearly done that. It is not just a visceral reaction. I don't like this, so it must be God's fault. Now, his cry from beginning to end is a result of a carefully examined life. Job chapter 31 then summarises really all that Job wants to say, so we're going to be mainly in this chapter as Job explains his innocence. The first thing that is obvious about his innocence is that he avoids sin. He avoids sexual sin. Chapter 31 verse 1 I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman, he says. Or verses 9 to uh, 11. If my heart was enticed by a woman, or if I lurked at my neighbour's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her. For that would have been wicked, a sin to be judged. 
Strong words he uses here. He, he has disciplined, he says, his eyes, made a covenant with them. Not to look at pornography or salacious films or anything else that arouses lust in him. He's disciplined his behaviour. He does not look at another woman's door. He will not flirt. He will not send flirty texts. He will not uh, uh, cross the room to, to speak to that woman who caught his eye. He says, if my marriage is broken because of my unfaithfulness, then I deserve it. That's what he says, doesn't he? Let another man sleep with her. It's, it's, it's sort of brutal language. But it's a truth that we must engage with. Men in particular, every survey suggests that a frighteningly large proportion of men these days, and that includes Christian men, look at internet pornography. You are not alone, but it is not trivial. It ruins marriages. It corrupts your attitude to women. Some of you know that for some years now, I've subscribed uh, personally to a, 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 a service called Covenant Eyes for my own protection against that kind of temptation on, uh, on the internet. And it takes its, its name, actually, from Job chapter 31, verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes. I want to urge you, especially men, sometimes it's a problem for women, but I want to urge you to do that for yourself. Don't uh, conclude with that service that you can't afford it. It's not free. I'd even recommend you take it out of your charitable giving if that's where it has to come from. It is one of the scourges of our world. If you want to claim innocence, you need to make that covenant with your eyes. More than that, Job avoids lies. Verse 5 if I have walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, he has avoided sin in the workplace. Verse 13, if I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they have a grievance against me, he says, how we treat those under us is vitally important in the workplace. Also, how we treat our boss frankly, is important. Our customers, our clients, the authorities that we deal with, everyone at work needs to be dealt with justly. We must avoid sin, avoid breaking the law, specifically verse 21. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, perhaps you've got... Um, a clever accountant who can do a bit of tax avoidance for you. Perhaps you've got friends that mean that you can manipulate things a bit. Now, Job believed in the rule of law. Just because he had power in his community didn't mean that he should use it. 
The law must rule over him. He avoids as well more directly spiritual sins like idolatry. Look at verses 24 to 28. If I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then those also would be sins to be judged for I would be unfaithful to God on high. Notice how he puts together trust in gold with trust in the sun and moon, in the, in the world that Job lived in, um, they, they worshipped the gods of the, of the sun and the moon and might be enticed to effectively kiss the hand of the gods of the sun and the moon. He's, he's saying, if I tr- put my trust, whatever I put my trust in, apart from, uh, apart from the true God, that is idolatry. Perhaps we're not so uh, tempted to worship the sun and the moon, uh, most of us, but an awful lot of us are inclined to say, money, you are my security. We are saying, money, you are my God, as Jesus pointed out. And he was absolutely clear, you cannot worship both God and money. Where's your heart? If your trust is not in the living God, You are an idolater and you cannot claim innocence. That's what Job's saying. But something else Job is saying about his innocence as well. His innocence is avoiding sin, but his innocence is also associated with showing mercy. That's most prominent. Just a couple of chapters earlier, at the beginning of this last great speech, which I... Christine will be relieved I didn't ask her to read all of um, in uh, Job 29. Look at verses 12 to 17. I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying, bless me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing, justice as my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Notice he describes all of that activity as righteousness and justice in verse 14. Tim Keller describes this um, uh, as generous justice. justice. Justice, says the Bible, is not just about all that avoiding of sin. That's really important. But justice has a positive side as well. It is also about showing mercy. Showing mercy to the poor, verse 12. I rescued the poor. Showing mercy to orphans, verse 12 again. The fatherless who had none to assist them. There's there's a big push actually amongst Christians uh, in this country at the moment to consider fostering and adopting the children. um, uh, 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 Children who are fatherless, who who are one way or another removed from their parents. The government has said that um, uh, uh, they're going to make it easier for um, these children to be adopted. Lots and lots of children are waiting for adoption and the Evangelical Alliance actually headed um, this campaign by Krishkandaya 
who was mentioned, we will be, he will be here soon, they are spearheading a campaign to get Christians to adopt or at least foster some of these children. What a great Christian thing to do, to show mercy to the fatherless. Just as Job did. And he showed mercy to the terminally ill. Verse 13. The one who was dying blessed me. Do you know hospices where people can die in dignity and be cared for and have their pain managed in the last phase of their life? That's a deeply Christian thing. He showed mercy to widows as well. Verse 13. I made the widow's heart sing. And we might add single mums who are so hard pressed. He showed mercy to the sick. Verse 15. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. How wonderful to support Anna Vines who's out in, in Africa at the moment helping children with club feet. Showing mercy to the lame. You know, John Pedley's not here, is he? What a great thing for all optometrists to think about. I'm showing mercy to those with poor eyesight, that's me included, and helping them. And as part of that that merciful uh, initiative of of Job's, uh, he fought injustice. Verse 17, I broke the fangs of the wicked, snatched the victims from their teeth. Joining Amnesty International is a righteous activity. Going with a vulnerable person to to represent them before the authorities is a righteous activity. Look at, what about asylum seekers as well? Um, uh, Verse 16, uh, Uh, Yes, I took up the case of the stranger. Perhaps by extension, international students. They may not be as vulnerable as asylum seekers, but many of them are lonely. Many of them uh, uh, feel um, vulnerable and friendless. Caring for, 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 for international students, we long for them to hear the gospel, but we also love them intrinsically if we are believers. Show mercy on those who are amongst us a little bit detached, a little bit lonely. Job's innocence, you see. Job's description of his life that makes him innocent has to involve those two things. An avoidance of sin, it's vital. But active engagement in mercy, it is, that is, part of righteousness. There's a third element too. And actually the third element could easily be missed, and yet it is the most vital thing. You see, Job is not sinless. Innocent, he is. 
But actually in the Bible, from beginning to end, innocence is different from sinlessness. And we can very easily miss that. He was uh, uh, introduced in the most glowing terms, wasn't he? He's blameless, upright, fearing God, shunning evils. We've seen his list of virtues is astonishing. But he never professes perfection. He avoids evil. He's actively involved in showing mercy. But perfect he is not. He makes it plain in chapter 4, verse 17. No one can be. Can a mortal, he says, be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? Answer, no. But then he explains how he deals with his sin. His innocence is based also on his dealing appropriately with his sin. First of all, back in chapter 31, he uh, makes it very obvious that he confesses his sin. Indeed, it is an important part of his righteousness. Do you see verse 33, chapter 31? If I concealed my sin, as people did, by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent and would not go outside, if I did that, I would deserve God's judgment, he says. He acknowledges it. it is shaming to confess our sins, isn't it? It's difficult sometimes. And we're not called, frankly, to confess all of them to all people. That would just be a sort of, sort of different kind of pornography of the soul, where we just display all our dirty wares on the uh, uh, on the street. That, that that is not what Christians are called for, called to. But we are called to publicly acknowledge that we are sinners. And we are called to confess our sins much more broadly to some who will help us and pray for us and encourage us. If you have significant sins in particular that nobody else knows about, It is dangerous. Find someone to talk to. Someone who you trust. Job's innocence depends on the fact that he did not deny his sins. And all of that, there's another aspect of this appropriate dealing with sin that we must see. He confessed his sins. But also, he offered sacrifice for sin. 
It's there in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, right back at the beginning. We learned that uh, part of his care for his sons was when a period of feasting had run its course, he would make arrangements for his sons to be purified and early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. And at the end of the book of Job you will find him offering sacrifices again for the sins of his friends. And since Job himself has acknowledged here that he too is a sinner. It is, it, it, it is impossible to imagine anything other than that he sacrificed sins for his own, uh, uh, he, he offered sacrifices for his own sins too. Sacrifice for sin was an essential part of Job's rhythm of life. Why a sacrifice? Because in the economy of God, every single sin that is committed demands a payment. That is part of God's justice. And though we may confess our sins, and that is good, the confession does not pay for the sin. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were just a picture. We're just waiting until God would finally sort it out. Paying for every one of our sins himself through his son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins. Your confession of your sin simply opens you up to the possibility that as you go to God now and as you go to Jesus, the payment that Jesus made on that cross might be for your sin and mine. We must deal appropriately with our sin. So let me say to you, in this life you will suffer. Nothing is clearer from the book of Job. Innocent and guilty suffer alike. This world is a world of chaos and from our perspective there doesn't seem to be a strong correlation between a person's suffering and their innocence or guilt. Horrible people seem to get away scot-free in this life with hardly any suffering and nice people often suffer horribly. But that is not the way it will be eternally. The Bible promises actually that one day at the end of time God will make a new creation and at that point he will make a division between the innocent and the guilty. 
And the innocent won't be the sinless ones, and the guilty won't be the, 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 the sinful ones, because no one can be sinless. The innocent won't even be the relatively sin, sinless ones, and those who are more uh, uh, sinful. That's not the way God is, God's economy works. The innocent, in the end, will be the ones like Job, who confess their sins, and who sought a sacrifice to pay for their sins. Who was God the Son, Jesus Christ. And the guilty will be the ones who, however big or small, their number of sins was. Refused to do that. The Bible dwells at length on the ones who will finally be declared innocent. It will be an eternity of unimaginable joy where there is no more sorrow or crying or mourning or inappropriate suffering or indeed suffering of any kind. The Bible doesn't dwell at length on that other group save to warn us that it's not somewhere you want to go. Because the worst thing that could happen in all of your life is not the sufferings here and now. It's to hear the word from God on the last day. Guilty. You will suffer. Don't be a guilty sufferer.